Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, Dr. Andrew McCumber joins us to discuss Raymond Williams' ideas of nature from problems in materialism and culture. Andy introduces us to Williams' overview of our changing understanding of nature and the natural and why it matters. Andy also discusses the influence of the essay on his dissertation research and current book project titled The Pest We All Live With, The Cultural Meanings of the Life and Death of Rats. As always, a PDF of this essay is available through the show's notes. Thank you for joining us today, Andy. Thank you for having me. You have the honors of being the first guest of 2022, which I don't know how much of an honor that is. I'm sure you've had other things that are more important in your life. (laughs) Well, it still feels weird just that it's 2022 to begin with. So I'd say it's an honor. Yeah. All right. That's, I'm still working. I still remember writing 1993 on my homework in <laughs> grade school. That's the year that I'm still stuck. On. <laughs> uh, all right. So you sent us the ideas of nature, which is from Raymond Williams. It's from 1980. And it was from his larger, I think it's a volume just of his essays called Problems of Materialism and Culture. And I'm just wondering to get us started why you chose this particular reading. Well, for me, as somebody who's both an environmental sociologist and a cultural sociologist, Raymond Williams is someone that has a lot to say about both of those sort of halves of my scholarly persona, I guess. This is just one reading that I sort of come back to of his again and again, that is specifically on the concept of nature and sort of its intersection with culture. And I should say that nature itself is sort of just an like a central organizing concept that really is important for me in my work. So anything that's going to be titled Ideas of Nature is is really going to be important for me. But Raymond Williams has been sort of become famous in this field of, I guess, cultural environmental sociology and even environmental studies more broadly. Like anybody who has something to say about uh, society and nature often will like start a piece by quoting his famous line from another piece of his in his keywords. The entry on nature that begins with nature is perhaps the most complex word in the English language. And it's uh, become sort of a cliche hook to start a piece that's looking at how nature intersects with the social to begin with that Raymond Williams quote. And uh, so much so that it's almost like easy to reduce his thoughts on nature to that quippy little statement about nature being so complex. But I think we see in this Ideas of Nature essay where he gets to spend a little bit more time thinking about the concept that he has quite a bit more to say and and quite a bit of nuanced thoughts about how nature as a concept animates the social. And I picked it partly because I wanted to read it again. Um, I've read it a number of times and it's about a 15 to 20 page essay or so. And it's one of those essays that I feel like every time I reread it, I kind of come away with a different thing or, you know, a different piece that I didn't remember or notice before necessarily. So it's organized these sections that build on each other, but I also feel like it's kind of an essay that crams quite a bit of ideas, as the title implies, big, difficult to digest even ideas about nature into a very short amount of time. So it's hard to summarize in a sentence or two, but there's a lot in there. Yeah. And I'm a little embarrassed because my background is in geography and I feel like I should have read this because it's at that intersection of, I mean, a lot of geographers are studying the intersection of society, culture, the environment. And I've never actually looked at this. This was a fun chance for me to read through it. And I do think it's indicative of Raymond Williams' style in that 
it seems kind of humble, right? He has this project where he's defining these words for us and helping us just understand a concept. But then once you get into it, it's pretty dense, right? It's not that his writing's obtuse, but it's really dense. At least I found that when I was reading yesterday. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I'd say as compared with some of his other work, it's even a little bit less dense or obtuse than some of the stuff that you might read. But it's still, you know, it's challenging. And I came to Raymond Williams myself because a number of all the things that I mentioned about it being so important to my work, but also because different members of my dissertation committee when I was in grad school recommended it in different ways. And one of them is, is a real expert on Raymond Williams. And I will not claim to be the kind of expert on Raymond Williams's entire body of work that they are. So I apologize to the Raymond Williams experts out there if I you know don't do him justice. I know there are a lot of uh, strong opinions about what exactly he means by some of his terminological things out there. So Okay, that'll make it fun because I'm, I'm more naive than you are. So we'll blunder through it <laughs> together. So thinking about the style of writing of the piece, would you assign this in the classroom? And if so, what type of classes might you use this? Or is it the type of piece where you would draw on the ideas, but not actually have the students engage with it? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say that I was thinking about that question as I reread it this time. And, you know, I think it'd be probably a tough piece to assign for most undergrad classes, maybe like in an advanced undergrad class, like an undergrad theory class or perhaps an environmental sociology class. I would certainly assign it in a graduate seminar on either environmental sociology or theory. One class that I've been slowly putting together a syllabus for that I hope to get to teach sometime in the future. I'm currently on a research postdoc, so I'm not doing any teaching right now. But I'd love to teach a theory-based course on nature and culture broadly. And this, I think, would work really well as a central piece maybe to be, to read in the first few weeks of that. And for me, for, for an environmental sociology course, perhaps like at a graduate level seminar on environmental sociology, I think this could work nicely. And specifically since I study culture as, as well as the environment, I think it is a really good piece for thinking about the environment as important for sociology, not just from the perspective of the physical environment, but also as a cultural level. So the nature as a cultural object or something to be consumed through meaning rather than just through materiality, in other words. Environmental sociology as a subject discipline is sort of built on this idea that the material physical world is an important factor in the social. And I think uh, an important part to bring to those courses is that it's also an important cultural part of the social world. That seems like a perfect entry into this reading. So why don't you take us into it? And as you said, it's organized. There's five sections. It starts with the singular, abstract, and personified. Then we have the new idea of evolution, the abstraction of man, the natural and the conventional. And then it concludes with for and against improvement. So how do you recommend we actually get into this piece? And so feel free to take the lead. And this is the part where I get to just follow along, which is fun. Well, uh, just by way of giving an overview, and actually this uh, gives me a chance to say a little bit more about uh, the previous question and how you might use this in the class. Because uh, as you mentioned, it, it has these subheadings and a lot of what Raymond Williams seems to be doing, and especially the first several of these sections is giving a kind of intellectual history of the concept of nature and some key moments in how we've come to think of nature as this external abstracted force that's external to the social world. And I'd just like to say that one thing that I could see you doing with this piece in the classroom is pairing it with, and you mentioned you have a geography background, so maybe you're more familiar with Bill Cronin's work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the historian and geographer William Cronin has a really foundational and, and famous 
this piece called The Trouble with Wilderness that does a similar kind of, in a much different stylistic way, does a similar move in terms of looking at how we came to think of nature and wilderness as the way that we think of them now. And I think it would be interesting to compare and contrast those two and think about the intellectual history that they draw out. I think there are definitely some affinities and similarities there. But Mm. in general, he's starting with this sort of odd idea when you think about it in a sort of classic sociological way, making the familiar strange. We think of nature, we, we all have a sort of intuitive concept of nature, but how did we come to think of it in these terms? And does it include humanity in the concept if it's fundamentally thought of as external to the social? That's sort of the core puzzle that he's dealing with, which I think is a core puzzle for a lot of work within cultural and environmental sociology that has followed it. He begins with describing the idea that in order to you know, to get from an idea of humanity as fundamentally connected with nature to one where we're fundamentally at odds with nature. First, it requires a a couple different modes of abstraction. And the first one is that we lump all of this, the vast non-human world out there from brooks and streams to animals to later he talks about the forces of evolution and weather all under this banner of nature. And so it's this abstracted force that at once It's very intuitive, but refers to this impossibly large set of material phenomena, right? And in order for it to be external from nature, you also have to have an abstracted concept of man or the social itself to put in opposition to it. So I think that's what he's sort of doing with these two abstractions there. And I think that's the general structure of the piece in terms of the intellectual history. And from these two different ideas of nature connected to society and not, we wind up with this idea of it as this sort of almost deity that is external to us and is the wilderness that is untouched by nature, right? But in doing that, I think that he, again, it has this sort of normative structure to it in drawing out that intellectual history, but he slips in all of these interesting ideas that aren't necessarily, like, from what I can read anyway, building into to one comprehensive argument, but he's giving us a number of different things to chew on as far as how we think about nature. I hope that is good enough for uh, giving us an overview. That helps in thinking about my own experience reading this piece, because it does seem like each section builds on the previous one, but it's not perfectly cohesive. It is like you're saying, it's almost where you can read through and pick out these paragraphs that seem really profound and dwell on those. And then you can go to a next argument, but you don't even have to necessarily go in order. He has a few sections in here. And I was just thinking about this when you were bringing up the point that one of the things he's doing is saying how we've lumped together all these different types of processes and things all under the same umbrella term of nature. And on page 70, that's in the bottom left. This is one of the parts that stuck out to me. He says, I'm bound to say I would feel in closer touch with the real situation if the observation made with great skill and precision were not so speedily gathered. I mean, of course, at the level of necessary generalization into singular statements of essential, inherent, and immutable characteristics, into principles of a singular nature. And this is the part that I liked. Um, Again, I read it quickly, so these little things that stuck out. I have no competence to speak directly of any of these processes, but to put it as a common experience, when I hear that nature is a ruthless, competitive struggle, I remember the butterfly. 
And when I hear that's a system of ultimate mutual advantage, I remember the cyclone. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on with all these examples. But I think he's so good at giving these like little things that show how ridiculous those ideas are. Yeah. And I love that you picked out that quotation because I, I love that one too. And I actually used that contrast between the butterfly and the cyclone as sort of the opening quote for when I taught, you know, a unit on environmental sociology oh, in cool. my uh, yeah. Soch 1 class. So that's one that I come back to again and again, too. And I think uh, pieces like that are the ones that are especially important or useful for me because in my work, I study culture and I try not to box myself into one specific theoretical camp or position, but I studied uh, culture as in terms of cultural objects and meaning and materiality. And as somebody who's interested in nature as this broad sort of overarching thing, what I distill it down to often is how we see nature in specific significations or objects. So he shows us how it's this sort of malleable idea that can be sort of deployed for these different rhetorical reasons, right? And I think he even says like nature can be at some point that it can be both a conservative and a radical or revolutionary concept, depending on how you're using it. In this case, it's like we all can agree that there's a notion of nature as this immutable force that's external to us. But depending on how we want to deploy that, we can deploy it to talk about that force being one of collective mutual advantage or this destructive individualist force, right? So one of the things that stuck out to me when I first read this piece was on page 78 in the section, The Natural and the Conventional. He has this section that's sort of a meditation about hedges as... Oh, yeah, this was a good one. Natural or not natural. Yeah. And so he says, I remember someone saying that it was unnatural, a kind of modern scientific madness to cut down hedges. And as a matter of fact, I agree that they ought not to be cut down. But what was interesting was the hedges were seen as natural, as parts of nature, though I should imagine everyone knows that they were planted and tended and would not be hedges if men had not made them so. A considerable part of what we call natural landscape has the same kind of history. So it was this, you know, for a while when I thought about this piece, I thought about this rather small passage of it that's about hedges and the central question of like, are hedges part of nature? Or are they part of society if we're breaking things up that way? And I mean, I guess I should say that when I first read this piece, I was working on a master's thesis that dealt with urban nature and specifically tree life in where I live, Santa Barbara, California, during California's drought. So I was really interested in the the question of what kinds of flora and fauna are considered nature or natural specifically in an urban setting when we have so much control over them and we have to contend and reconcile that control with the natural conditions that we're living in so he gives this example of a hedge where it's a particularly provocative one because of all the things you can immediately point to. Like, you know, you can cut up a hedge to be in a certain shape that like it would never grow in, quote unquote, naturally. But if we sort of expand our view, we can see that that same principle applies to almost any aspect of nature now, especially something that I was thinking about this time around that I wasn't as keyed into the first time I read this as, you know, in my first couple of years of grad school was the concept of uh, the Anthropocene. Which is a term that he never used and I guess was not in vogue really at the time he was writing, right? Right, yeah. I found it really interesting because I feel like he's really anticipating that some of the thought that's happened around the term of the Anthropocene and some of his discussion of things like hedges and wilderness 
Earth here. So I guess I should just say the Anthropocene is the notion that the Earth has entered a new geological era where the dominant uh, influence on like Earth's natural systems is human activity. So we're in the era where where humans are the dominant force in natural systems, right? So uh, it implies this sort of absolute collapsing of the difference between humanity and nature, right? The idea that even the most distant natural wildernesses are in effect sort of like the hedge that Raymond Williams is talking about and that it's they're sort of bent to the will of or you know their characters and somehow shaped by human activity no matter how distant it might be. So I think there's a lot in here theoretically that still rings true based on some of the environmental thought that's happened since and some of the environmental issues around climate change that have become more increasingly pressing since then. When you read this, do you find that you gravitate towards that type of, trying to think of how to describe it, but almost there's a series of arguments and then you're really good at grounding it in particular examples. Do you find yourself catching the example and then reading the argument around it more than what I'm actually doing is asking if you read it like I read it, because I found myself doing that, right? I would be going through, I'll get a little lost in some of the stuff he was saying. And then he have this moment where he talks about what I brought up, the butterfly and the cyclone. And then I could almost trace backwards and see what that paragraph was doing leading up to that point or that section on the hedges where it really makes it clear in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I'd say like that I definitely read it that way. And and just as sort of evidenced by the fact that those examples are what really stuck in my mind after the first couple of times I read this, like as I've said a couple of times, it's because it might have like sort of an overarching structure and a general argument, but it's really just a lot of again, as the name implies, a bunch of different ideas of nature crammed into these 15 to 20 pages. So it's sort of once you're finished reading with it, it's sort of hard to hold the totality of it in your mind, or at least I've found. So I've found that like the things that resonate with me or that I remember after reading it are these examples and the kinds of theoretical questions that they pose. I think another thing that has stuck out for me, a different read through perhaps is towards the end, this isn't necessarily one of his sort of analogies or examples, but he comes to this notion of the naturalness of the landscape in terms of industrial production. Okay, this is the final section for and against improvement? Yeah. Yeah. Is there a section that we could read together from this? I want to hear your thoughts on this because this was the part that was most interesting to me. And then I have another more abstract question to ask you after, but let's go into the text again. Okay, so I think, you know, in this section, the uh, for and against improvement, one good place to start is on page uh, 84 at the top, where he says... We have to look at all our products and activities, good or bad, and to see the relationship between them, which are our own real relationships. More clearly than than anyone Marx indicated this, though still in terms of quite singular forces, I think we have to develop that kind of indication. In industry, for example, we cannot afford to go on saying that a car is a product, but a scrapyard a byproduct, any more than we can take the paint fumes and petrol fumes, the jams, the mobility, the motorway, the torn city center, the assembly line, the time and motion study, the unions, the strikes as byproducts rather than the real products they are. But then, of course, to express this, we should need not only a more sophisticated, but a more radically honest accounting than any we have now. Yeah, that seems really profound. But what do we make of that? What does that mean, especially that shift between the byproduct to the real product? 
Yeah. And again, this is something that certainly didn't stick out at me as like the main idea of the piece the first or maybe even the second time that I read it, but it stuck out at me as potentially important this time around. And further down, he says it would be ironic if uh, one of the last forms of separation between abstracted man and abstracted nature is an intellectual separation between economics and ecology. And I think by pointing to these products and byproducts and the, the distinction between the two, yeah, at least I read it this way as he's pointing to the sort of analogous distinction between human society and nature. And so we think of human society as the products, the sort of manifest as opposed to latent products of human industry. And if slag heaps and smog and traffic are products and not just byproducts, then if you follow him down this logical line, then getting back to the concept of the Anthropocene, right? Like where if we're thinking about the wilderness in the most remote parts of the world as now shaped by human action and not simply autonomous from it, that's not just a byproduct of human intervention or human industry anymore. That's actually a product of it, I think is sort of what he's saying. But it's an equally artificial distinction between byproducts and products and human society and nature. So I think, again, he's anticipating some of the collapsing of those boundaries that's been in vogue since, especially since we've been talking about things in terms of the Anthropocene. That's how I read it anyway. Tell me if this is wrong. It's why this is I'm kind of working through this idea out loud as you were reading this to me. It seems like there's also a potential critique of I'm thinking of like clean energy and green capitalism, where we're doing all we're producing all this good, and we're trying to minimize that other stuff. That's not really what we're producing. There is all that waste, there's a batteries we have to collect for the electric car. And we're trying to minimize that but focus on the product. And then we're trying to minimize all those other things. And there's some way here we're saying they both have to be considered. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure how much, uh, you know, of that specific critique is explicitly written into the the paper, especially since it's from 1980. Yeah, um, not that, you know, renewable energy didn't exist at all then. But like, I'd say the discourse around it has certainly yeah. evolved since then. And I think to take some of the ideas in here and, and apply them to that, like you, you might be saying, but to put them in terms of a critique of green energy infrastructure and things like that, you might say that he's implying that those things have evolved under the assumption of this fundamental distinction. Yeah, yeah. Right. Or this artificial boundary between humans and society. And I'm inclined to agree with him there. Yeah. I don't know that that necessarily suggests a an obvious social program or alternative, uh, especially since he's not writing specifically about green energy in the text. But I think especially here, he's getting into this, you know, Marxist analysis, and he name drops Marx in that paragraph. And there's a point at which I think in the next paragraph, following this paragraph about products and byproducts, where he even name drops Marx, he goes on to say that even the, the idea of the balance of nature uh, has its social implications. If we talk only of singular man and singular nature, we can impose a general history, but at the cost of excluding the real and altering social relations. Capitalism, of course, 
has relied on the terms of domination and exploitation. Imperialism and conquest has similarly seen both men and physical producers as raw material. But it is a measure of how far we have to go that socialists also still talk of the conquest of nature, which in any real terms will always include the conquest, the domination, or the exploitation of some men by others. So in drawing this sort of Marxist analogy to the notion of humanity's relationship with nature, he's sort of invoking Marx's ideas of like relationships to the means of production. And I think he implies a parallel notion of relationships to nature as a quasi means of production. And since he speaks of ideas of nature, plural, and, and in that passage, he, he says he cast out on the idea of thinking of a singular man and a singular nature. He's pointing out that the ideas of nature, plural, are dependent on your relationship to nature and perhaps also your relationships to the means of production in this more Marxist sense. And I wouldn't have picked up on that critique earlier in the reading at all. This kind of only appears in the last page or two. Right, exactly. Which again points to the unique structure of this where he's taking a shotgun approach to giving you all these different provocative ideas. And again, I think that analogy to Marxist relationships to the means of production is something that I, again, didn't pick up on the first time. But he even talks about it in terms of consumption at some point where nature is the raw materials of industrial production, but we're consuming it through landscape and from a bourgeoisie consumerist perspective, we, we consume it through landscape and aesthetics in this other way, which you know is important for me as someone who studies culture and consumption in, in some respects. Okay. So my next question, and it, I think it's a good way to wrap up the conversation. So if you have any concluding points, we could take a moment. But I was curious how this influences your own research, because I think that's one of those steps that always fascinates me, where we have these foundational readings, these things we can go back to over and over, and we find them inspiring, but they're very big. And then you go as a sociologist and you say, now I'm going to actually research something and I'm going to do something. I'm going to gather data. I'm going to make these arguments based on the data that I've gathered or the observations that I have. So how does this influence you with your own projects? And whether that's your dissertation work, or I know you have a new project that you're working on as a postdoc, how do you hold on to this? Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I mentioned a little bit earlier about when we were talking about his specific examples, whether it's the cyclone or the butterfly or the hedges, about him distilling the concepts of nature into unique signifiers and using those as examples. And I feel like that's, for my own work, one of the most influential things. Like the book that I'm writing that's from my dissertation work is about rats and rat extermination. And the way that I came to that project is because I find rats to be this fascinating cultural object in terms of nature because they're parts of the non-human world, right? If we're just talking about humans and non-humans being the demarcation between society and nature, they're clearly on the natural side. But on the other hand, they thrive in urban environments. They're invasive species who threaten the native ones that are more obvious signifiers for nature. And so they have occupied this troubled midway point between society and nature. Um, so a lot of what I'm doing in that work and some other work is, is looking at how different signifiers and cultural objects, specifically lately around animals, non-human animals, and, and also sometimes places. And again, to get back to geography, which is another big influence on my work, thinking about place as 
different cultural objects of nature, but generally how nature is deployed in those different significations or how we come to think about nature in terms of individual objects. And I think for the rat, which is, you know, maybe the most important one for me, it's it's a little bit analogous to the hedge or maybe it's sort of an inverse to that because the hedge is this thing that's ambiguously natural or social, but it's in his description of it, like, positively valenced, right? We're uh, worrying about cutting them down uh, because we like them. We like the way that they look and we're thinking that they're natural. Rats are sort of the opposite, right? We're actively trying to get rid of them and kill them even because of their unnaturalness in a way and because they trouble our ideas of nature and trespass on those boundaries. So I guess just taking, you know, getting back to Williams and he... Uh, in this book or in this this piece, I mentioned that he's had so much to say about about nature and culture, and whether it's this, whether it's his keywords anthology or his book The Country and the City, he's sort of a, a big figure in terms of this distinction between nature and culture. So I even, uh, in, in terms of its his influence on me, I recall and actually for for this rats project when I proposed my dissertation project to my committee you know, in my, my proposal defense, one of my committee members, they said, and this is the thing that sticks out for me from that entire exchange is you have to be careful, like, don't just tell us something about nature being separate from culture or nature being separate from society, because you're never going to say anything that Raymond Williams hasn't already said. <laughs> and and I've, I've taken that as like, okay, Raymond Williams is like an important person in this field, and I have to be careful to say something new. So yeah. Uh, hopefully that's a <laughs> yeah. I don't I don't know if that counts as an inspiring way to end, but it's <laughs> I mean it's an impressive statement about Raymond Williams at least. <laughs> so I think it's a pretty good place to wrap it up. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I hope I gave you uh, some satisfactory answers to these questions on a dense and kind of difficult piece. Great. I think you did what the piece did. You gave us a lot. To, you gave us a lot of exciting little parts, <laughs> and we could edit together the podcast just like we could edit together the writing in any way we want. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, I didn't make things too difficult on you in the terms of the editing. So. No, no. This, thank you again for making time. It was uh, it was fun, and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah. You too. Take care. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing theme music, SUNY Brockport for providing financial support, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. <laughs>